start asking Jeff to sing before every sermon after Advent's over. Y'all agree? Now get an amen. <laughs> amen. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, it's good, it's good to be with you all, and uh, I'm hearing that I might have just put some pressure on you guys, and I want, I want you to feel that, okay? <laughs> all right. Um, we're in a season where we celebrate Advent. This isn't a biblical mandate for us, but it is Something that we do is we take advantage of the time before us, as the church has through the ages, uh, to, to uh, indulge in a time of waiting and preparation for our Savior, who is, uh, whose birth we're celebrating in six days, y'all, six days. Uh, and we, over the last few weeks, we've talked a lot about Advent, looking at it from a lot of different angles. And uh, we've talked about waiting, we've talked about darkness. We've talked a lot about hope, and we will continue to talk about hope this morning. Uh, But if I could give you another angle to think about about our time uh, celebrating Advent, it it really is a looking back in order to look forward. And uh, I bring all that up because when we sing Joy to the World here, which we will in a few minutes, um, Isaac Watts did something really interesting with that hymn. Now, Isaac Watts was a hymn writer, but he was also a theologian. He was a pastor. Um, and uh, what he did was he took a royal psalm, Psalm 98, which looks forward to, uh, the, um, uh, to the arrival of, the, of God's promised king. And he writes a hymn, Joy to the World, as if it already happened. And so he's teaching us, by singing that hymn, he's teaching us to look back at God's promises and look forward also to the day when the king arrives and sets the world to rights. And when we look at Isaiah 52, Isaiah is doing a lot of, similar, the, the, a lot of the same thing in this passage. And what he's doing is he's speaking prophecies to consolation, prophecies of consolation to God's people who are really desperate to hear it. And he's calling them to imagine with a vivid imagination, a holy imagination, the day when good news comes to them. And that's what we're talking about this morning is the good news that comes to us, the promise of good news and the response to good news. So let me uh, let me pray or let me look at this. I'm going to read Isaiah 52. I'll read verses 7 through 10 and then I'll pray and we'll dig in. Hear the word of the Lord. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice, together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. 
The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let me pray. Father, there's so much that could be said about this. And so I pray that you would help me to speak in a way that's helpful. And I pray that you would help us to hear what it is you would like us to hear this morning. And I pray that you would lift our hearts in hope during this time. That you would give us an even greater anticipation of the Savior who came to us once and the King who is coming to us again. Help us, O Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it feels like only yesterday, Um, but it was March of 2020, and uh, a guy, an actor, many of whom uh, love, John Krasinski, Uh, you might remember him as Jim from The Office, but he, uh, he, what he did was he began a little series on social media that grew into something of a phenomenon called Some Good News. Some of you remember this, it was called SGN, and uh, it was March of 2020, And if you remember, this was the very beginning of the pandemic. And uh, what he was trying to do was send some good news uh, to people that, to to, to those of us who felt overwhelmed by all the bad news that we were hearing. Like if you remember, this was a time when we were, when we were only hearing bad news and it felt like only bad news was on the horizon. And so John Krasinski uh, from his living room on lockdown, like most of us were, uh, he began just broadcasting some good stories. He crowdsourced, people sent him lots of stories of good, and he assembled them and he started sharing them with us. And he sent us all kinds of inspiring stories of uh, like cancer survivors coming home to their neighborhoods that were celebrating them on the streets. It was really sweet to see. Uh, we saw videos of delivery guys going the extra mile when they brought like groceries to people who you know, couldn't go out to, to do their own shopping. Uh, the one that really got to me was this video of an 81-year-old couple. They had been married for decades. And she was in a nursing home, which was a very dangerous place to be. But this was uh, a nursing home uh, for Alzheimer's patients. And so her memory had faded quite a bit. And we saw a video of her and her husband, who couldn't be with her, was standing outside her window, outside the building, and he he was singing at the top of his lungs through the glass, Amazing Grace, and she joined in with him. And she might not have even remembered her own name, or even the name of the man who was out there, but he remembered, she remembered the lyrics to that hymn. It was incredibly sweet. That's when it started to get a little dusty in the room. And what he was doing was he was simply making the argument that despite the darkness that we see around us, and it's real, and despite the darkness that we feel inside of us and all the reasons for fear, he was simply trying to tell us that there was still good in the world, that there was still beauty, and there were still people that were capable of beauty. And uh, in an interview he did later, uh, he said he was trying to change the narrative about the world and our lives in it. And I think he went about that work well. I think it was enjoyable. It was encouraging for what it was. And yet, despite the truth of all of that, even then, we could feel that there was a barrier to what we could accomplish by looking at these things, right? That real relief, real relief only comes 
when the circumstances of the lives that we live in the world change completely. In Isaiah 52, what we see is that Isaiah brings good news, truly great news, to a town that is desperate to hear something good. And we see that that's exactly what they get. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, is what the passage says. So what is this news? What's the news, the life-changing, truly transcendent, circumstance-changing news that comes to them? What is the news, and how do they respond to the news? That's, those are the questions that I want to ask this morning. So if you're taking notes, I see a few of you. Those are my two points, the content of the news and the response to the news. First, the content of the news. The, the image here really is of a messenger who's coming to the city bringing good news to the city. What, the, the scenario of all of this is that the king has been away, okay? The king is away from the city, and he's fighting on behalf of the city, and the people's welfare really depends on how the king's campaign goes. That if he wins, they flourish. And if he loses, they suffer. And the messenger, what we see here is that a messenger is dispatched from the battlefield, as they, as they would do, to run to the city to bring good news of the king's victory over their enemy. And you probably already know, but I'm going to say it anyway. When we talk about the gospel here at Red Mountain, we are talking about a word that quite literally means good news. And when we talk about the gospel, and other gospel preaching churches do this too, we are talking about a victory that has been won on our behalf and that we rejoice over. And so this good news is good news of a victory, but it's also good news that uh, that promises the coming of a new era. What's interesting to me is that the content of the news in verse 7, if you look at it, that you don't just see news of what happened, you see news of the implications this has for the life of the people. Let me look at this one by one. It describes the end of one thing and the establishment of something else. He publishes peace. And what this means is that it's, it's, it's talking about the end of war and the end of division and difficulty and the establishment of peace, the end of one era and the establishment of another. He brings good news of happiness. This is the end of derision and misery, and darkness, and discontent, and the establishment of joy. That's the new era that's being promised to us. He publishes salvation. That's a really interesting word, salvation. It's an important word. He's talking about the end of an oppressor. It's describing a liberating king who comes to liberate his people from the oppression of a foreign enemy. And then it ends with this summary statement, that your God reigns. It's the end of the enemy's rule over the people and now the establishment of a new rule. And the contention, listen, the contention of the New Testament authors that we need to wrestle with, this is, the, this is one of the critical claims of what it means to be a Christian, is that the answer to the promises that are given to us here are all found in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. 
That Jesus is the one that this passage was pointing to. In fact, the New Testament authors, it's really fascinating, the New Testament authors are always making that claim. They're always making the case for that. When we talk about peace, Jesus calls, or Paul calls Jesus the peacemaker who brought peace through the blood of the cross. And Luke, we, we used it as our, uh, as our reading this morning. Sarah read this for us. And Luke, uh, there's an angel telling the shepherd that Jesus' birth, that he says, I bring you good news of great joy. All of these are being traced to the person of Jesus himself. He's, he's, uh, Jesus talks about himself as a liberator. He says, I have been sent to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That Jesus frees us from the guilt of our sin and the oppression and the, the, oppression, the oppression of our lives. That he is the great liberator. And the author of Hebrews, and in several other places, these are just examples. The author of Hebrews makes the case that Jesus is a king. That he is right now ruling. Hebrews chapter 1 says he upholds the universe by his power and sits at the right hand of majesty on high. And if you are wrestling with the claims of Christ, this is, the, this is one of the claims to wrestle with. That Jesus is the one that the scriptures have always been pointing to. That, he, that in his life, death, resurrection, and his ascension, he is the one who's the answer to all of the promises that God offers his people. And, and if that's what you believe, if that is your faith... If you, if you can agree with that awesome claim, then it changes everything for us. It, cha- it absolutely changes everything about how we live out our lives. Because as Christians, we believe that we live between two advents. That there's one advent we're remembering right now, right? That's uh, Jesus' first coming. We're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus in six days. And then there's a second advent. That when Jesus comes back as king to establish his rule forever. And, and what's hard for us is that we live in a tension between the two. Of one that has promises and we're waiting for Jesus to come back and establish his rule. But at the very least what we look at here is that if these are the, if these are the claims of Jesus. Then it should change everything about how we see the world. How we see ourselves in it. And how we see each other. Over, over the past uh, year I've, that I've been with you, uh, several of you have made comments to me. Uh, and you know who you are. Uh, that, that you've noticed that I wear glasses when I preach, but I don't wear glasses all day, right? Like some of you have noticed that. And uh, I, I think that, um, that, uh, that you should know why that is. Because it's not vanity. Uh, it's, I promise you, it's not like I don't wear these uh, because of the way they make me look. Um, I wear them because I need them to read. Uh, I don't need them when I sit with you to grab lunch or something like that or interact, or I don't even need them to drive, but I need them to pull words off a page. And so uh, I got them back when I was in seminary because that does something funny to your eyesight. And I noticed something interesting when I first started wearing glasses. I noticed that I could study for long periods of time. Like, I, reading wasn't as exhausting to me anymore. And uh, I could go further because I was wearing my glasses. I could pull words off the page quicker, uh, and it just wasn't hard. And an eye doctor, she explained to me what was going on. She said that when your eyesight begins to decline, when it's harder to see, 
Your brain works overtime to compensate. That's what she said. She said, your eyes are actually exhausting your brain. And I want to just ask you the question. Is it possible that your eyes are exhausting your brain? Let me ask you, when you look at the world, when you look at, when you look at each other, uh, when you look at your kids, when you look at difficult people, uh, when you look at tragedy, when you look in the mirror, what lens are you looking through when you look at those things? Are you looking through a lens of despair? Or are you looking through a lens of hope? Despair is really easy, isn't it? Like despair, we traffic in despair. Every major news source traffics in despair. We could pull all their websites up and make that case. Despair is really easy to come by, and we come by it honestly. But what I want you to see when Jesus, when Isaiah gives us this prophecy that holds out about the promises of Jesus, what he's doing is he's taking our lens, he's replacing the lens through which we see everything. And he's teaching us to see the world as God sees the world. He's teaching us to understand how God grieves over the state of the world and is honest about that and yet holds hope out for us at the same time. That grief and hope are not actually mutually exclusive, but somehow we hold them both together with an open hand. And it should affect everything about how we see everything that we interact with. Over the last couple of weeks, we've heard difficult stories about what's going on in the world, haven't we? I mean, it was, what was it, a week and a half ago that tornadoes ripped across Kentucky, destroyed a town? And we should see those things, and we should grieve over them, and we should help as much as we can. And when we suffer here, we should see those things. We, we can grieve and be honest about the reality of those things. But, 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 what we're, but because of Jesus, we're able to look at those things as a source of hope. Because there, there's going to come a time where Jesus, our King, comes back and sets up his rule, and creation will heal. And it's very easy for us to look at each other and feel despair, isn't it? Especially when, uh, especially when we see people making decisions that seem unwise and possibly dis- destructive, that might affect us. It's, it's very easy to think despairingly about the world our kids might be growing up to in. Worry for our spouses or worry for our friends. But because of Jesus, we can, we can grieve over the things that we see, but we can also have hope for them that we don't know the end of their stories. And we can pray with hope that God is writing a new into their stories. And we can be honest about ourselves too, right? Like because of Jesus, we can be honest about ourselves. I don't, I, I'm not going to ever show this to you, okay? It's my eyes only. But I have a prayer journal. And if you were to look back in my prayer journal, you would see me confessing the same sins over and over again for years, Okay? And it'd be very easy for me to despair. Like, am I ever going to kick this? Am I ever going to beat this? There's a theme of sin that reigns in my heart that I'm fighting against and confessing, and yet somehow I, I can despair that maybe it's getting the upper hand. But because of Jesus, I can grieve over that reality 
And I can hope for the day when I will be completely renewed because of what Jesus did. Grief and hope commingle. And he's teaching us to see those things. The content of the news helps us to see both of those things. Tomorrow, Shonda and I and the family are going to go to a funeral because Shonda's dad passed away. And y'all have been so kind to us. And that will be sad. I mean, there's no way around that. We will grieve the loss of that man. But because of his legacy of faith, we can look at that and have just a tremendous amount of hope because of who Jesus is. And the content of the news allows us to grieve with incredible hope. That's the gift that Jesus gives us. It protects us from the exhaustion of a lens of despair and helps us to learn to see the world and ourselves in it with great hope. So that's the content of the news. What's the, and you, see, you also see this response, uh, the response to this news picked up by the people as we look forward in this passage. It's really, really fascinating as we look at the response to this news. In verse 8 and following, we see a response from the watchmen. They're the first people that respond. The watchmen, they would be on the walls or at the gates of the city. They would be the first one who sees a messenger probably yelling good news as he comes near the city. They would be the first ones to see this, this great message who's coming. And in a word, what do we see when we look at this response? If you were to choose one word, you would choose joy. It says they lift up their voices and they sing for joy. Joy is a response to the good news that God has to give. And what's interesting is you see a unified joy. Look at the passage. It says that eye to eye they see the same thing. Now now we could look at that and we would think that maybe, it kind of reads like this, that maybe they all saw at the same time and they all started to burst into singing together at the same time. But this is actually a Hebrew idiom that gets at something deeper that's going on in their hearts and in their minds. It really means that they see together the message and agree in heart and mind of what this message means for them. And so they all agree on joy. That God's people, when they hear the gospel, we agree on joy. And so it's a unified joy. And then we see that it's an infectious joy. Look, you see that the joy spreads from the walls throughout the city, even into the waste places of Jerusalem. And we could talk all day about how profound that is. That those who were residing, their lives were made in the waste places. That's that's the ruins of the city. Even they were singing for joy. And so our joy, Advent joy, the covenant joy that we get to enjoy is at its core a defiant joy. That even the people in the waste places were singing that if Advent trains us in joy, listen, it trains us in a defiant joy, a joy that defies all the reasons that we have for misery, that even those who dwell amongst the waste of the city are rejoicing because of what their king has done for them. Listen, when I think about Christmas, 
um, we all get very strange during that time. Have you ever thought about this? Like we, ad- we start adopting strange behavior. Uh, we eat differently. Uh, certain things that we would never eat the rest of the year, we suddenly have to have during this time, right? We dress differently. I've got a, uh, I got a Christmas sweater that comes out once. Actually, it's probably due to break that out, right? <laughs> we listen to different music. This is the time of year when I remember that Wham wrote a song that I love and should never go away. Everything becomes different. We decorate our houses differently. The way we gather is different. We have certain events. We have an Advent hymn sing. It's a big deal for us. I don't think our theater ever looks better than when we decorate it with wreaths and things like that. I mean, it's just wonderful. What's going on behind all that? I think there's something wonderfully good. Sometimes we, sometimes we hit what we're aiming at and sometimes we don't. But at the core of all of that strange behavior is the summoning of a defiant joy. That despite the, the state of our lives and the circumstances that we live in, the state, even the state of our own hearts, we are, we are calling ourselves to a defiant joy that insists that joy is our call. And so we summon up joy with each other. When we sing joy to the world, what are we singing? We are singing a call to joy. And listen, this song only makes sense if we sing it loudly, right? Like this is not a song that you have to sing well. It only makes sense when we sing it robustly though. So we sing it loudly. Why? Because this is, this, this is a global joy that this hymn is describing. It's, talking, it's saying joy to the world. Joy to the whole earth is the way the second verse starts. It says heaven and nature are singing. What does this sound like? It sounds like the Christian proclamation that there's coming a time when the very... Remember what we long for. There's coming a time when the very circumstances of all life in the world will be fundamentally different. And how will that happen? Well, the hymn tells us because it's simply that the Lord has come. That the core of our celebration of Advent is that the Lord has come, the Savior reigns, and he rules a world of joy. And listen, there are times as a pastor where it feels like I'm saying the same thing every, every, uh, every week. Like half of ser- other pastors will agree with me on this. But half of sermon prep can feel like this. What's a new clever way of saying what I said last week, right? How can I avoid repeating myself? But when we look at joy to the world, I feel a little better. You know why? Because it tells us to repeat the sounding joy. And then it tells us to repeat the sounding joy again. Three times, we will repeat the sounding joy. That this is a hymn, and our faith is a faith, and our God is a God, and our Jesus is a king who insists on joy. And so we will insist on joy, because God in his word and through his prophets and Isaiah insisted that the people would understand joy. And because Jesus and his apostles insist on joy, and the church through the ages has insisted, even in dark times, that God's people will be a people of joy. And listen, our brothers and our sisters of faith across the world will insist that joy is the chorus of our song, that even though misery and difficulty might be laced through the early verses that we sing together, joy is the way of our chorus. It is who we are 
and it is our fundamental identity that we live with a sort of defiant joy that persists. And so we call each other to joy. But all the same, there are times when joy might feel unreasonable, right? The joy can be really hard for us sometimes. And you might think I'm off my rocker right now. If only you knew my life. Joy can be hard. The task of joy is hard. Let me close by telling you a story um, about singers in the waste places. Uh, remembering the ruins of Jerusalem had me thinking about the ruins of another city uh, years ago. This was when I was a teenager. It was the mid to, mid to, early to mid-90s. Uh, in southern Europe, Sarajevo was under siege. Many of you will remember when that happened. Uh, it, they were under siege for just shy of four years in that city. It was, uh, it's understood as the longest siege of a capital city during the history of modern warfare. And accounts of life in that city is just, uh, is just, uh, just sound awful. Much of the city was destroyed. The enemy forces were lobbing bombs into the city just at anything that would move. And there were snipers everywhere. And so if you, were, if, you were in, if you lived in the city, you were really running for your life from building to building, keeping your head down. Just Like some of the most haunting video footage that you'll see of that time is just people running around with their heads down because they don't know who might be looking at them. And uh, food was really hard to find. And uh, drinking water was really hard to find. If you were a resident in that city during those four years, you were really in a day-to-day fight for your life. And yet a story came out in 1993 that really showed the defiant and irrepressible hope of the people. The residents got together and they decided that they would hold a beauty pageant of all Of all things, the people got together and they decided they would hold a beauty pageant in defiance of the ugliness and death that had come to characterize their days. They were going to celebrate beauty. And so they all risked their lives. And they came together in one basement. They tried to do it on the street, but, uh, but it was too dangerous. They wanted to do it out in the open for the world to see, but it was too dangerous. So they huddled up in a, in a very large basement room underground and, uh, where, and you can see, you can look and you can see footage of, uh, of all of the people that came to attend this, uh, this beauty pageant. It was an act of great defiance. And I located a CNN clip. This is just amazing uh, where they covered this happening. And there's a point where the CNN camera goes backstage and, and they look at all of the, uh, they look at all, oh, there are kids coming in. Hello. I'll be quick. That was a signal. That's like when they start playing music at the Oscars, right? So, um, so the, the, the camera goes backstage and starts to look at these contestants. And you know what those women were doing? They were singing. They were singing a song of no surrender for Sarajevo. And through a translator, one of these ladies said, this song is our act of defiance. And so we, listen, it occurs to me that if they have a reason to sing, so do we. That no matter what, we have a God who reigns. And we have a Jesus who has come to us. And Jesus is our king. 
And he promises us a day when all things will be made new. And this king will reign. And we, you and I, we will exist in perfect fellowship with each other. And we will eat around the table together. And Jesus will be with us. And so we can have joy. Even in the waste places, we can have joy. Amen. Let me pray. Oh, you, our king, what a promise you hold out for us. That you indeed are renewing all things. And so I pray that you would be with us now, that you would hold us in hope, even as we grieve, and that you would teach us the way of a defiant joy. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.